Hello, and welcome back to the Legends of War podcast. I'm your host, Griffin, and today we'll be talking about the 1919 Irish War for Independence. The Irish War of Independence, or Anglo-Irish War, was a guerrilla war fought in Ireland from 1919 to 1921 between the Irish Republican Army, the IRA, and British forces along with the quasi-military RIC, Royal Irish Constabulary, and its paramilitary forces, the Auxiliaries, and USC, or the Ulster Special Constabulary. It was part of the Irish Revolutionary Period. In 1916, Irish Republicans launched the Easter Rising against British rule and proclaimed an Irish Republic. Although it was crushed after a week of fighting, The rising in the British response led to a greater popular support for Irish independence. In the December 1918 election, the Republican Party Sinn Féin won a landslide victory in Ireland. On January 21, 1919, they formed a breakaway government called the Dáil and declared Irish independence. That day, two RIC officers were killed in an ambush by IRA volunteers acting on their own initiative. The conflict developed gradually. For most of 1919, IRA activity involved capturing weaponry and freeing Republican prisoners, while the Dáil set about building a state. In September, the British government outlawed the Dáil and Sinn Féin and the conflict intensified. The IRA began ambushing the RIC and British Army patrols, attacking their barracks and forcing isolated barracks to be abandoned. The British government bolstered the RIC with recruits from Britain the Black and Tans, and auxiliaries who became notorious for ill-discipline and reprisal attacks on civilians, some of which were authorized by the British government. So the conflict is sometimes called the Black and Tan War. The conflict also involved civil disobedience, notably the refusal of Irish railwaymen to transport British forces or military supplies. In mid-1920, Republicans won control of most county councils, and British authority collapsed in most of the South and West, forcing the British government to introduce emergency powers. About 300 people had been killed by late 1920, but the conflict escalated in November. On Bloody Sunday in Dublin, November 21, 1920, 14 British intelligence operatives were assassinated. Then the RIC fired on the crowd at a Gaelic football match killing 14 civilians and wounding 65. A week later, the IRA killed 17 auxiliaries in County Cork. In December, British authorities declared martial law in much of Southern Ireland, and the center of Cork City was burnt by British forces in reprisal for an ambush. Violence continued to escalate over the next seven months, when 1,000 people were killed and 4,500 Republicans were interned. Much of the fighting took place in Munster, particularly County Cork, Dublin, and Belfast, which together saw over 75% of the conflict deaths. The conflict in Northeast Ulster had a sectarian aspect. While the Catholic minority there were mostly backing for Irish independence, the Protestant majority were mostly Unionist and Loyalist. A mainly Protestant special constabulary was formed, and Loyalist paramilitaries were active. They attacked Catholics in reprisals for IRA actions, and in Belfast, a sectarian conflict raged in which almost 500 were killed, most of them Catholics. In May 1921, Ireland was partitioned under British law by the Government of Ireland Act, which created Northern Ireland. 
A ceasefire began on July 11, 1921. The post-ceasefire talks led to the signing of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on December 6, 1921. This ended British rule in most of Ireland, and after a 10-month transitional period overseen by provisional government, the Irish Free State was created as a self-governing dominion on December 6, 1922. Northern Ireland remained within the United Kingdom. After the ceasefire, violence in Belfast and fighting in border areas of Northern Ireland continued, and the IRA launched a failed Northern Offensive in May 1922. In June 1922, disagreement among Republicans over the Anglo-Irish Treaty led to the 11-month Irish Civil War. The Irish Free State awarded 62,868 medals for service during the War of Independence, of which over 15,000 were issued to IRA fighters of the Flying Columns. Since the 1870s, Irish nationalists in the Irish Parliamentary Party had been demanding home rule or self-government from Britain. Fringe organizations such as Arthur Griffith's Sinn Féin instead argued for some form of Irish independence, but they were a small minority. The demand for home rule was eventually granted by the British government in 1912, immediately prompting a prolonged crisis within the United Kingdom as Ulster Unionists formed an armed organization, the UVF, or the Ulster Volunteers. They were formed to resist the measure of devolution, at least in territory they could control. In turn, nationalists formed their own paramilitary organization known as the Irish Volunteers. The British Parliament passed the Government of Ireland Act in 1914, known as the Home Rule Act, on September 18, 1914, with an amending bill for the partition of Ireland introduced by the Ulster Unionists' members of Parliament. But the Act's implementation was immediately postponed by the Suspensory Act of 1914 because of the outbreak of the First World War in the previous month. The majority of nationalists followed their leaders and John Redmond's call to support Britain and the Allied war effort in Irish regiments of the new British Army. The intention was to ensure the commencement of home rule after the war. However, a significant minority of the Irish volunteers opposed Ireland's involvement in the war. The volunteer movement split, a majority leaving to form the National Volunteers under Redmond. The remaining Irish volunteers under Ewan McNeil held that they would maintain their organization until home rule had been granted. Within this volunteer movement, another faction, led by the separatist Irish Republican Brotherhood, began to prepare for a revolt against British rule in Ireland. The plan for this revolt was realized in the Easter Rising of 1916, in which the volunteers launched an insurrection whose aim was to end British rule. The insurgents issued the Proclamation of the Irish Republic, which proclaimed Ireland's independence as a republic. The rising, in which over 400 people died, was almost exclusively confined to Dublin and was put down within a week. But the British response, executing the leaders of the insurrection and arresting thousands of nationalist activists, galvanized support for the separatist Sinn Féin. The party, which the Republicans first adopted and then took over, as well as followers from Countess Markovitz, who was second in command of the Irish Citizen Army during the Easter Rising. By now, support for the British war effort was waning, and Irish public opinion was shocked and outraged by some of the actions committed by British troops, particularly the murder of Francis Skeffington and the imposition of wartime martial law. In April 1918, the British cabinet, in the face of crisis caused by the German Spring Offensive, 
attempted with a dual policy to simultaneously link the enactment of conscription into Ireland with the implementation of home rule, as outlined in the report of the Irish Convention in April 1918. This further alienated Irish nationalists and produced mass demonstrations during the conscription crisis of 1918. In the 1918 general election, Irish voters showed their disapproval of British policy by giving Sinn Féin 70%, 73 seats out of 105 of Irish seats. 25 of these were uncontested. Sinn Féin won 91% of the seats outside Ulster in over 46% of votes cast, but was a minority in Ulster where the Unionists were a majority. Sinn Féin pledged not to sit in the UK Parliament at Westminster, but rather to set up an Irish Parliament. This Parliament, known as the First Doll, and its ministry consisted of only Sinn Féin members, and they met at the Mansion House on January 21, 1919. The Doll reaffirmed the 1916 proclamation with the Irish Declaration of Independence and issued a message to the free nations of the world which stated that there was an existing state of war between Ireland and England. The Irish volunteers were reconstituted as the Irish Republican Army, or IRA. The IRA was perceived by some members of the Dáil to have a mandate to wage war on the British. The heart of British power in Ireland was the Dublin Castle Administration, often known to the Irish as the Castle. The head of the Castle Administration was the Lord Lieutenant, to whom a Chief Secretary was responsible leading, in the words of British historian Peter Cottrell, to an administration renowned for its incompetence and inefficiency. Ireland was divided into three military districts. During the course of the war, two British divisions, the 5th and the 6th, were based in Ireland with their respective headquarters in Curra and Cork. By July 1921, there were 50,000 British troops based in Ireland. By contrast, there were 14,000 soldiers in metropolitan Britain. While the British Army had historically been heavily dependent on Irish recruitment, concern over divided loyalties led to the redeployment from 1919 of all regular Irish regiments to garrisons outside of Ireland itself. The two main police forces in Ireland were the Royal Irish Constabulary, the RIC, and the Dublin Metropolitan Police. Of the 17,000 policemen in Ireland, 513 were killed by the IRA between 1919 and 1921 while 682 were wounded. Of the RIC's senior officers, 60% were Irish Protestants and the rest Catholic. While 70% of the rank and file of the RIC were Irish Catholic, with the rest Protestant. The RIC was trained for police work, not war, and was woefully ill-prepared to take on counterinsurgency duties. Until March 1920, London regarded the unrest in Ireland as primarily an issue for the police and did not regard it as a war. The purpose of the army was to back up the police. During the course of the war, about a quarter of Ireland was put under martial law, mostly in Munster, and the rest of the county British authority was not deemed sufficiently threatened to warrant it. During the course of the war, the British created two paramilitary police forces to supplement the work of the RIC, recruited mostly from World War I vets, namely the Temporary Constables, better known as the Black and Tans, and the Auxiliary Division, better known as the Oxys. On November 25, 1913, the Irish Volunteers were formed by Ewan McNeil in response to paramilitary Ulster Volunteer Forces that had been founded earlier in the year to fight against Home Rule. 
Also in 1913, the Irish Citizen Army was founded by the trade unionists and socialists James Larkin and James Connolly following a series of violent incidents between trade unionists and the Dublin police in the Dublin lockout. In June 1914, Nationalist leader John Redman forced the volunteers to give his nominees a majority on the ruling committee. When, in September 1914, Redman encouraged the volunteers to enlist in the British Army, a faction led by Ewan McNeil broke out with the Redmonties, who became known as the National Volunteers, rather than fight for Britain in the war. Many of the National Volunteers did enlist, and the majority of the men in the 16th Irish Division of the British Army had formerly served in the National Volunteers. The Irish Volunteers and the Irish Citizen Army launched the Easter Rising against British rule in 1916, when an Irish Republic was first proclaimed. Therefore, they became known as the IRA, the Irish Republican Army. Between 1919 and 1921, the IRA claimed to have a total strength of 70,000, but only about 3,000 were actively engaged in fighting against the Crown. The IRA distrusted those Irishmen who had fought in the British Army during the First World War, but there were a number of exceptions, such as Emmett Dalton, Tom Barry, and Martin Doyle. The basic structure of the IRA was the flying column, which could number between 20 and 100 men. Finally, Michael Collins created the squad, gunmen responsible only to him who were assigned special duties, such as assassinating police and suspected informers within the IRA. The years between the Easter Rising and the beginning of the War of Independence in 1919 were not bloodless. Thomas Ashe, one of the volunteer leaders imprisoned for his role in the 1916 rebellion, died on a hunger strike after attempted force-feeding in 1917. In 1918, during disturbances arising out of the anti-conscription campaign, six civilians died in confrontation with the police and British Army, and more than a thousand people were arrested. There were also raids for arms by the volunteers, at least one shooting of a Royal Irish Constabulary policeman, and the burning of an RIC barracks in Kerry. The attacks brought a British military presence from the summer of 1918, which only briefly quelled the violence and an increase in police raids. However, there was not yet a coordinated armed campaign against British forces or the RIC. In County Cork, four rifles were seized from the Erie's barracks in March 1918, and men from the barracks were beaten that August. In July 1918, volunteers ambushed two RIC men who had been stationed to stop a lorry being held on the road between Ballingarry and Ballyvorney in the first armed attack on the RIC since the Easter Rising. One got shot in the neck, the other beaten, and police carbines and ammunition were seized. Patrols in Ballyvorney were badly beaten in September and October. By November 1918, Armistice Day was marked by severe rioting in Dublin that left over 100 British soldiers injured. While it wasn't clear that the beginning of 1919 that the Dáil ever intended to gain independence by military means, and war was not explicitly threatened in Sinn Féin's 1918 manifesto, an incident occurred on January 21, 1919, the same day as the first Dáil convened. The solo headbag ambush in County Tipperary was led by Sean Tracy and Dan Breen acting on their own initiative. The IRA attacked and shot two RIC officers, Constable James McDonnell and Patrick O'Connell, who were escorting explosives. Dan Breen later recalled, We took the action deliberately, having thought over the matter and talked it over between us. 
Tracy had stated to me that the only way of starting a war was to kill someone, and we wanted to start a war. So we intended to kill some police, who we looked upon as the foremost and most important branch of the enemy forces. The only regret that we had following the ambush was that there were only two policemen in it instead of the six we had expected. This is widely regarded as the beginning of the War of Independence. The British government declared South Tipperary a special military area under the Defense of the Realm Act two days later. The war was not formally declared by the Dáil and ran its course parallel to the Dáil's political life. On April 1919, the Dáil was told that, as regards to the Republican prisoners, we must always remember that this country is at war with England, and so we must, in a sense, regard them as necessary casualties in the great fight. In January 1921, two years after the war had started, the Dáil debated whether it was feasible to accept formally a state of war that was being thrust on them or not, and decided not to declare war. Then, on March 11th, the Dáil president, Eamon de Valera, called for acceptance of a state of war with England. The Dáil voted unanimously to empower him to declare war whenever he saw fit, but he did not formally do so. Volunteers began to attack British government property, carry out raids for arms and funds, and target and kill prominent members of the British administration. The first was resident magistrate John Milling, who was shot dead in Westport, County Mayo, for having sent volunteers to prison for unlawful assembly and drilling. They mimicked the successful tactics of the Boers' fast, violent raids without uniform. Although some Republican leaders, notably Eamon de Valera, favored classical conventional warfare to legitimize the new republic in the eyes of the world, the more practically experienced Michael Collins and the broader IRA leadership opposed these tactics as they had led to the military debacle of 1916. Others, notably Arthur Griffith, preferred a campaign of civil disobedience rather than armed struggle. The violence used was at first deeply unpopular with the Irish people, and it took heavy-handed British response to popularize it among much of the population. During the early part of the conflict, roughly from 1919 to the middle of 1920, there was a limited amount of violence. Most of the nationalist campaign involved popular mobilization and the creation of a republican state within a state in opposition to British rule. British journalist Robert Lind wrote in the Daily News in July 1920, so far as the mass of people are concerned, the policy of the day is not active but a passive policy. Their policy is not so much to attack the government as to ignore it and to build up a new government by its side. The IRA's main target throughout the conflict was the mainly Irish Catholic Royal Irish Constabulary, the British government's armed police force in Ireland outside of Dublin. Its members and barracks, especially the more isolated ones, were vulnerable, and they were a source of much needed arms. The RIC numbered 9,700 men stationed in 1,500 barracks throughout Ireland. A policy of ostracism of RIC men was announced by the Dáil on April 11, 1919. This proved successful in demoralizing the force as the war went on, as people turned their faces from a force increasingly compromised by association with British government repression. The rate of resignation went up as recruitment in Ireland dropped off dramatically. Often, the RIC were reduced to buying food at gunpoint, as shops and other businesses refused to deal with them. Some RIC men cooperated with the IRA through fear or sympathy, supplying the organization with valuable information. 
By contrast, with the effectiveness of the widespread public boycott of the police, the military actions carried out by the IRA against the IRC at this time were relatively limited. In 1919, 11 RIC men and four Dublin Metropolitan Police G Division detectives were killed and another 20 RIC wounded. Other aspects of mass participation in the conflict included strikes by organized workers in opposition to the British presence in Ireland. In Limerick, in April 1919, a general strike was called by the Limerick Trades and Labor Council as a protest against the declaration of a special military area under the Defense of the Realm Act, which covered most of Limerick City and a part of the county. Special permits issued by the RIC would now be required to enter the city. The Trades Council Special Strike Committee controlled the city for 14 days in an episode that is known as the Limerick Soviet. Likewise, in May 1920, Dublin dockers refused to handle any war material and were soon joined by the Irish Transport and General Workers Union, who banned railway drivers from carrying members of the British forces. Black-legged train drivers were brought over from England after drivers refused to carry British troops. The strike badly hampered British troop movements until December 1920, when it was called off. The British government managed to bring the situation to an end when they threatened to withhold grants from the railway companies, which would have meant the workers would no longer get paid. Attacks by the IRA also steadily increased, and by early 1920, they were attacking isolated RIC stations in rural areas causing them to be abandoned as the police retreated to the larger towns. In early April 1920, 400 abandoned RIC barracks were burned to the ground to prevent them from being used again, along with almost 100 income tax offices. The RIC withdrew from much of the countryside, leaving it in the hands of the IRA. In June of 1920, trials by jury could not be held because jurors failed to attend. The collapse of the court system demoralized the RIC, and many police resigned or retired. The Irish Republican Police was founded in April 1920 under the authority of Dahl and former IRA Chief of Staff Cathalbrugge to replace the RIC and to enforce the ruling of the Dahl Courts, set up under the Irish Republic. By 1920, the Irish Republican Police were in 21 of Ireland's 32 counties. The Dahl courts were generally socially conservative despite their revolutionary origins and halted the attempts of some landless farmers at redistribution of land from wealthier landowners to poorer farmers. The inland revenue ceased to operate in most of Ireland. Police were instead encouraged to subscribe to Collins's national loan set up to raise funds for the young government and its army. By the end of the year, the loan had reached £358,000 and eventually reached £380,000. An even larger amount, totaling over $5 million, was raised by the United States by Irish Americans and sent to Ireland to finance the Republic. Rates were still paid to local councils, but 9 out of 11 of these were controlled by Sinn Féin, who naturally refused to pass them on to the British government. By mid-1920, the Irish Republic was a reality in the lives of many people, enforcing its own law, maintaining its own armed forces, and collecting its own taxes. The British liberal journal, The Nation, wrote in August 1920 that the central fact of the present situation in Ireland is that the Irish Republic exists. The British forces, trying to reassert their control over the country, resorted to arbitrary reprisals against Republican activists and the civilian population. An unofficial government policy of reprisals began in September 1919 in County Cork, 
when 200 British soldiers looted and burned the main businesses of the town after one of their soldiers had been killed in an armed raid by the local IRA on a church parade the day before. The ambushers were a unit of the Number 2 Cork Brigade under the command of Liam Lynch, who wounded four of the other soldiers and disarmed the rest before fleeing in their cars. The local coroner's inquest refused to return a murder verdict over the soldier, and local businessmen who sat on the jury were targeted in the reprisal. Arthur Griffith estimated that in the first 18 months of the conflict, British forces carried out over 38,000 raids on private homes, arrested almost 5,000 suspects, and committed over 1,600 armed assaults, carrying out 102 indiscriminate shootings and burnings in towns and villages, killing 77 people, including women and children. By March 1920, Thomas McCurtain, the Sinn Féin Lord Mayor of Cork, was shot dead in front of his wife at his home by men with blackened faces who were seen returning to the local police barracks. The jury at the inquest into his death returned a verdict of willful murder against Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister, and District Inspector Swansea, among others. Swansea was later tracked down and killed in Lisbon County Antrim. The pattern of killings and reprisals escalated in the second half of 1920 and 1921. Michael Collins was a driving force behind the independence movement. Nominally the Minister of Finance in the Republic's government and IRA Director of Intelligence, he was involved in providing funds and arms to the IRA units and in the selection of officers. Collins's charisma and organizational capability galvanized many who came in contact with him. He established what proved to be an effective network of spies among sympathetic members of the Dublin Metropolitan Police's G Division and other important branches of the British administration. The G Division men were a relatively small political division active in subverting the Republican movement and were detested by the IRA as they were used to identify volunteers who would have been unknown to British soldiers or the later Black and Tans. Collins set up the Squad, a group of men whose sole duty was to seek out and kill G-men and other British spies and agents. Collins's squad began killing RIC intelligence officers in July 1919. Many G-men were offered a chance to resign or leave Ireland by the IRA. One spy who escaped with his life was Digby Hardy, who was exposed by Arthur Griffith before an IRA meeting, which in fact consisted of Irish and foreign journalists, and then advised to take the next boat out of Dublin. The chief of staff of the IRA was Richard Mulcahy, who was responsible for organizing and directing IRA units around the country. In theory, both Collins and Mulcahy were responsible to Cathal Brugge, the Dahl's Minister of Defense, but in practice, Brugge had only a supervisory role, recommending or objecting to certain actions. A great deal also depended on IRA leaders in local areas, such as Liam Lynch, Tom Barry, and Ernie O'Malley, who organized guerrilla activity largely on their own initiative. For most of the conflict, IRA activity was concentrated in Munster and Dublin, with only isolated active IRA units elsewhere, such as in County Longford and County Mayo. While the paper membership of the IRA carried over from the Irish Volunteers was over 100,000 men, Michael Collins estimated that only 15,000 were active in the IRA during the course of the war, with about 3,000 on active service at any time. There are also support organizations, Kumindamba, the IRA Women's Group, and Fian Aaron, the youth movement, who carried weapons and intelligence for IRA men and secured food and lodgings for them. 
The IRA benefited from the widespread help given to them by the general Irish population, who generally refused to pass information to the RIC and the British military, who often provided safe houses and provisions to the IRA units on the run. Much of the IRA popularity arose from the excessive reaction of the British forces to IRA activity. When Eamon de Valera returned from the United States, he demanded in the Dáil that the IRA desist from the ambushes and assassinations which were allowing the British to portray it as a terrorist group and to take on the British forces with conventional military methods. The proposal was immediately dismissed. The British increased the use of force, reluctant to deploy the regular British army into the country in greater numbers. They set up two auxiliary police units to reinforce the RIC. The first of these, quickly nicknamed the Black and Tans, were 7,000 strong and mainly ex-British soldiers demobilized after World War I. Ployed to Ireland in March 1920, most came from English and Scottish cities. While officially they were part of the RIC, in reality they were a paramilitary force. After their deployment in March 1920, they rapidly gained a reputation for drunkenness and poor discipline. The wartime experience of most black and tans did not suit them for police duties, and their violent behavior antagonized many previously neutral civilians. In response and retaliation for IRA actions in the summer of 1920, the black and tans burned and sacked numerous small towns throughout Ireland, including Balbriggan, Trim, and Templemore, as well as others. In July of 1920, another quasi-military police force, the Auxiliaries, which consisted of over 2,200 former British Army officers, arrived in Ireland. The Auxiliaries had a reputation just as bad as the Black and Tans for their mistreatment of the civilian population, but tended to be more effective and more willing to take on the IRA. The policy of reprisals, which involved public denunciation or denial and private approval, was famously satirized by Lord Hugh Cecil when he said, It seems to be agreed that there is no such thing as reprisals, but they are having a good effect. On August 9, 1920, the British Parliament passed the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act. It replaced the trial by jury by court-martial on regulation for those areas where IRA activity was prevalent. So in December of 1920, martial law was proclaimed in counties Cork, Kerry, Limerick, Tipperary, and Munster. In January 1921, martial law was extended to the rest of Munster in counties Clare and Waterford, as well as counties Kilkenny and Wexford in Leinster. It also suspended all coroner's courts because of the large number of warrants served on the members of the British forces and replaced them with military courts of inquiry. The powers of military court-martial were extended to cover the whole population and were empowered to use the death penalty in internment without trial. Government payments to local governments and Sinn Féin hands were suspended. This act was interpreted as a choice by Prime Minister Lloyd George to put down the rebellion in Ireland rather than negotiate with the Republican leadership. As a result, violence escalated steadily from that summer and sharply after November 1920 until July 1921. It was in this period that a mutiny broke out among the Connacht Rangers stationed in India. Two were killed while trying to storm an armory and one was later executed. A number of events dramatically escalated the conflict in late 1920. First, the Lord Mayor of Cork, Terence McSweeney, died on a hunger strike in Brixton Prison in London in October, while two other IRA prisoners on hunger strike, Joe Murphy and Michael Fitzgerald, died in Cork Jail. Sunday, November 21, 1920, was a day of dramatic bloodshed in Dublin that became known as Bloody Sunday. 
In the early morning, Collins' squad attempted to wipe out leading British intelligence operatives in the capital, in particular the Cairo gang, killing 16 men, including two cadets, one alleged informer, and one possible case of mistaken identity, wounding five others. The attacks took place at different places, hotels and lodgings in Dublin. In response, RIC men drove in trucks into Croke Park, Dublin's Gaelic Athletic Association football and hurling ground, during a football match and shot into the crowd. Fourteen civilians were killed, including one of the players, Michael Hogan, and a further 65 people were wounded. Later that day, two Republican prisoners, Dick McGee and Peter Clancy, and an unassociated friend, Connor Clune, who had been arrested with them, were killed in Dublin Castle. The official count was that the three men were shot while trying to escape, which was rejected by Irish nationalists, who were certain these men had been tortured and then murdered. On November 28, 1920, a week later, the West Cork unit of the IRA under Tom Barry ambushed a patrol of auxiliaries, killing all but one of the 18-man patrol. These actions marked a significant escalation of the conflict. In response, the counties of Cork, Kerry, Limerick, and Tipperary, all in the province of Munster, were put under martial law on December 10th under the Restoration of Order in Ireland Act. This was followed on January 5th in the rest of Munster and in counties Kilkenny and Wexford in the province of Leinster. Shortly afterwards, in January 1921, official reprisals were sanctioned by the British and they began with the burning of seven houses in Middleton County Cork. On December 11th, the center of Cork City was burnt out by the Black and Tans, who then shot at firefighters trying to tackle the blaze in reprisal for an IRA ambush in the city on December 11, 1920, which killed an auxiliary and wounded 11. Attempts at a truce in December 1920 were scuppered by Hamar Greenwood, who insisted on a surrender of IRA weapons first. For the next eight months, until the truce of July 1921, there was a spiraling of the death toll in the conflict, with a thousand people, including the RIC, Army, IRA volunteers and civilians being killed in the months between January and July of 1921 alone. This represents about 70% of the total casualties for the entire three-year conflict. In addition, 4,500 IRA personnel or suspected sympathizers were interned at this time. In the middle of this violence, De Valera, the president of the Dáil, acknowledged a state of war with Britain in March 1921. Between November 1, 1920 and June 7, 1921, 24 men were executed by the British. The first IRA volunteer to be executed was Kevin Barry, one of the forgotten ten who were buried in unmarked grave in unconsecrated ground inside Mountjoy Prison until 2001. On February 1st, the first execution under martial law of an IRA man took place. He was Cornelius Murphy of Mill Street in County Cork, and he was shot in Cork City. On February 28th, six more men were executed, again in County Cork. On March 19, 1921, Tom Barry's 100-strong West Cork IRA unit fought an action against 1,200 British troops, the Crossberry Ambush. Barry's men narrowly avoided being trapped by converging British columns and inflicted between 10 and 30 killed on the British side. Just two days later, on March 21st, the Kerry IRA attacked a train at the Headford Junction near Killarney. 20 British soldiers were killed or injured, as well as two IRA men and three civilians. Most of the action in the war was on a smaller scale than this, but the IRA did have other significant victories and ambushes. For example, at Mill Street in Cork and at Scramongo in Roscommon, also in March 1921, and at Tormikiti and Karenkiti in Mayo, 
in May and June. Equally common, however, were failed ambushes, the worst of which, for example, at Mount Abbey, Upton and Cumna in Cork in February 1921, saw 6, 3, and 12 IRA men killed respectively and more captured. The IRA in Mayo suffered a comparable reverse at Kilmina when the Letrium flying column was almost wiped out at Selton Hill. Fears of informers after such failed ambushes often led to a spate of IRA shootings of informers, real and imagined. The biggest single loss for the IRA, however, came in Dublin on May 25, 1921, after several hundred IRA men from the Dublin Brigade occupied and burned the Customs House, the center of local government in Ireland, in Dublin city center. Symbolically, this was intended to show that British rule in Ireland was untenable. However, from a military point of view, It was a heavy defeat in which five IRA men were killed and over 80 captured. This showed the IRA was not well enough equipped or trained to take on British forces in a conventional manner. However, it did not, as is sometimes claimed, cripple the IRA in Dublin. The Dublin Brigade carried out 107 attacks in the city in May and 93 in June, showing a fall-off in activity but not a dramatic one. By July 1921, most IRA units were chronically short of both weapons and ammunition, with over 3,000 prisoners interned. Also, for all of their effectiveness at guerrilla warfare, they had, as Richard Mulcahy recalled, as not yet been able to drive the enemy out of anything but a fairly good-sized police barracks. Still, many military historians have concluded that the IRA fought a largely successful and lethal guerrilla war, which forced the British government to conclude that the IRA could not be defeated militarily. The failure of the British efforts to put down the guerrillas was illustrated by the events of Black Whitston on May 13, 1921. After a general election for the Parliament of Southern Ireland was held on May 13, Sinn Féin won 124 of the new Parliament's 128 seats unopposed, but its elected members refused to take their seats. Under the terms of the Government of Ireland Act 1920, the Parliament of Southern Ireland was thereby dissolved and executive and legislative authority over Southern Ireland was effectively transferred to the Lord Lieutenant, assisted by Crown appointees. Over the next two days, the IRA killed 15 policemen. These events marked the complete failure of the British coalition government's Irish policy, both a failure to enforce a settlement without negotiating with Sinn Féin and a failure to defeat the IRA. By the time of the truce, however, many Republican leaders, including Michael Collins, were convinced that if the war went on for too much longer, there was a chance that the IRA campaign, as it was then organized, could be brought to a standstill. Because of this, plans were drawn up to bring the war to England. The IRA did take the campaign to the streets of Glasgow. It was decided that key economic targets, such as the Liverpool docks, would be bombed. The units charged with these missions would more easily evade capture because England was not under, and British public opinion was likely to accept, a martial law. These plans were abandoned because of the truce. The Irish War of Independence ended with a truce on July 11, 1921. The conflict had reached a stalemate. Talks that had looked promising in the previous year had petered out in December when Prime Minister Lloyd George insisted that the IRA first surrender their arms. Fresh talks after the Prime Minister had come under pressure from H.H. Asquith and the Liberal Opposition, the Labour Party, and the Trade Unions Congress resumed in the spring and resulted in the truce. From the point of view of the British government, it appeared as if the IRA's guerrilla campaign would continue indefinitely 
with spiraling costs and British casualties and in money. More importantly, the British government was facing severe criticism at home and abroad for the actions of British forces in Ireland. In June of 1921, the British made their first conciliatory gesture, calling off the policy of house burnings as reprisals. On the other side, IRA leaders, and in particular Michael Collins, felt that the IRA, as it was, then organized, could not continue indefinitely. It had been hard-pressed by the deployment of more regular British soldiers to Ireland and by the lack of arms and ammunition. The initial breakthrough that led to the truce was credited to three people, King George V, Prime Minister South Africa General Jan Smuts, and David Lloyd George. The king, who had made his unhappiness at the behavior of the Black and Tans in Ireland well known to his government, was also dissatisfied with the official speech prepared for him for the opening of the new Parliament of Northern Ireland, created as a result of the partition of Ireland. Smuts, a close friend of the king, suggested to him that the opportunity should be used to make an appeal for conciliation in Ireland. The king asked him to draft his ideas on paper. Smuts prepared the draft and gave copies to the king and Lloyd George. Lloyd George then invited Smuts to attend a British cabinet meeting on the interesting proposals Lloyd George had received, without either man informing the cabinet that Smuts had been their author. Faced with the endorsements of them by Smuts, the King and Lloyd George, the ministers reluctantly agreed to the King's planned reconciliation in Ireland speech. The speech, when delivered in Belfast on June 22nd, was universally well-received. It called on all Irishmen to pause, to stretch out the hand of forbearance and conciliation, to forgive and to forget, and to join in making for the land they love a new era of peace, contentment, and goodwill. On June 24, 1921, the British coalition government's cabinet decided to propose talks with the leader Sinn Féin. Coalition liberals and unionists agreed that an offer to negotiate would strengthen the government's position if Sinn Féin refused. Austin Chamberlain, the new leader of the Unionist Party, said that the King's speech ought to be followed up as a last attempt at peace before we go the full lengths of martial law. Seizing the momentum, Lloyd George wrote to Eamon de Valera as the chosen leader of the great majority in Southern Ireland. On June 24th, he suggested a conference. Sinn Féin responded by agreeing to the talks. De Valera and Lloyd George ultimately agreed to a truce that was intended to end the fighting and laid the groundwork for detailed negotiations. Its terms were signed on July 9th and came into effect on July 11th. Negotiations on a settlement, however, were delayed for some months, as the British government insisted the IRA first decommission its weapons, but this demand was eventually dropped. It was agreed that British troops would remain confined to their barracks. Most IRA officers on the ground interpreted the truce merely as a temporary respite and continued recruiting and training volunteers. Nor did attacks on the RIC or British Army cease altogether. Between December 1921 and February of the next year, there were 80 recorded attacks by the IRA on the soon-to-be-disbanded RIC, leaving 12 dead. On February 18, 1922, Ernie O'Malley's IRA unit raided the RIC barracks at Clonmel and took 40 police prisoner and seized over 600 weapons and thousands of rounds of ammunition. In April of 1922, the Dunmanway killings, an IRA party in Cork, killed 10 local suspected Protestant informers in retaliation for the shooting of one of their men. Those killed were named in captured British files as informers before the truce signed the previous July. 
Over 100 Protestant families fled the area after the killings. Ultimately, the peace talks led to the negotiations of the Anglo-Irish Treaty on December 6, 1921, which was then ratified in triplicate by the Dáil on January 7, 1922, giving it legal legitimacy under the governmental system of the Irish Republic, by the House of Commons in Southern Ireland in July 1922, so giving it constitutional legitimacy according to British theory of who is the legal government in Ireland, and by both houses of the British Parliament. The treaty allowed Northern Ireland, which had been created by the Government of Ireland Act in 1920, to opt out of the free state if it wished, which it did on December 8, 1922, under the procedures laid down as agreed. An Irish Boundary Commission was then created to decide on the precise location of the border of the Free State in Northern Ireland. The Republican negotiators understood that the commission would redraw the border according to the local nationalist or unionist majorities. Since the 1920 elections in Ireland had resulted in outright nationalist majorities in County Fermanagh, County Tyrone, the city of Derry, and in many district electoral divisions of County Armagh and County Londonderry, all north and west of the interim border, this might well have left Northern Ireland unviable. However, the Commission chose to leave the border unchanged as a trade-off the money owed to Britain by the Free State under the treaty was not demanded. A new system of government was created for the new Irish Free State, though for the first year two governments coexisted, a Dáil headed by President Griffith and a provisional government nominally answerable to the House of Commons of Southern Ireland and appointed by the Lord Lieutenant. Most of the Irish independence movement leaders were willing to accept this compromise, at least for the time being, though many militant Republicans were not. A majority of the pre-truce IRA who had fought in the War of Independence, led by Liam Lynch, refused to accept the treaty and in March 1922 repudiated the authority of the Dáil and the new Free State government, which it accused of betraying the ideal of the Irish Republic. It also broke the Oath of Allegiance to the Irish Republic, which the Dáil had instated on August 20, 1919. The anti-treaty IRA were supported by the former President of the Republic, Eamon de Valera, and Ministers Cathalbrugge and Austin Stack. When the violence in the North was raging, the South of Ireland was preoccupied with the split in the Dáil and the IRA over the treaty. In April 1922, an executive of IRA officers repudiated the treaty and the authority of the provisional government, which had been set up to administer it. These Republicans held that the Dáil did not have the right to disestablish the Irish Republic. A hardline group of anti-treaty IRA men occupied several public buildings in Dublin in an effort to bring down the treaty and restart the war with the British. There were a number of armed confrontations between pro- and anti-treaty troops before the matters came to a head in late June 1922. Desperate to get the new Irish Free State off the ground and under British pressure, Michael Collins attacked the anti-treaty militants in Dublin, causing fighting to break out around the country. The subsequent civil war lasted until mid-1923 and cost the lives of many of the leaders of the independence movement, notably the head of the provisional government, Michael Collins, ex-minister Cathal Brugge, and anti-treaty Republicans, Harry Boland, Rory O'Connor, and Liam Mellows. Liam Lynch and many others were total casualties that had never been determined but were perhaps higher than those in the earlier fighting against the British. President Arthur Griffith also died of a cerebral hemorrhage during the conflict. Following the deaths of Griffith and Collins, W.T. Cosgrove became head of the government. 
On December 6, 1922, following the coming into the legal existence of the Irish Free State, W.T. Cosgrove became president of the Executive Council, the first internationally recognized head of an independent Irish government. The Civil War ended in mid-1923 in defeat for the anti-treaty side. The first mass internment camp in Ireland during the Irish War of Independence held almost 2,000 men. It was in Ballycanar and it gained a reputation for brutality. Three prisoners were shot dead and five died from maltreatment. At HM Prison in Belfast, Cork County Jail, and Mountjoy Jail in Dublin, some of the political prisoners went on a hunger strike. In 1920, two Irish Republicans died as a result of these hunger strikes. Michael Fitzgerald on October 17th and Joe Murphy October 25th, 1920. Conditions during internment were not always good. In the 1920s, the vessel HMS Argenta was moored in Belfast and used as a prison ship for the holding of Irish Republicans by the British government after Bloody Sunday. Cloistered below decks in cages held 50 internees. The prisoners were forced to use broken toilets, which overflowed frequently into their communal area. Deprived of tables, the already weakened men ate off the floor, frequently succumbing to disease and illness as a result. There were several hunger strikes on the Argenta, including a major strike involving upwards of 150 men in the winter of 1923. Much attention has been drawn to the IRA shooting of civilian informers in the South. Many historians, most notably Peter Hart, allege that those killed in this manner were often simply considered enemies rather than being proven informers. Especially vulnerable were Protestants, ex-soldiers, and tramps. It was not merely or even mainly a matter of espionage, spies, and spy hunters. It was a civil war between and within communities. Particularly controversial in this regard was the Dumanway killings of April 1922, when 10 Protestants were killed and three disappeared over two nights. Hart's contentions have been challenged by a number of historians, notably Niall Meehan. Another feature of the war was the use of propaganda by both sides. British government collected material on the liaison between Sinn Féin and Soviet Russia in an unsuccessful attempt to portray Sinn Féin as a communist movement. The Catholic Church hierarchy was critical of the violence on both sides, but especially that of the IRA, continuing a long tradition of condemning militant republicanism. The Bishop of Kilmore, Dr. Finnegan, said, Any war to be just and lawful must be backed by a well-grounded hope of success. What hope of success have you against the mighty forces of the British Empire? None. None whatsoever. And if it is as unlawful as it is, every life taken in pursuance of it is murder. The Archbishop of Tuam issued a letter saying that the IRA men who took part in ambushes have broken the truce of God and they have incurred the guilt of murder. However, in May 1921, Pope Benedict XV dismayed the British government when he issued a letter that exhorted the English as well as the Irish to calmly consider some means of mutual agreement as they had been pushing for a condemnation of rebellion. They declared that his comments put the British government and the Irish murder gang on a footing of equality. Desmond Fitzgerald and Erskine Childers were active in producing the Irish Bulletin, which detailed government atrocities which Irish and British newspapers were unwilling or unable to cover. It was printed secretly and distributed throughout Ireland and to international press agencies and U.S., European, and sympathetic British politicians. 
While the military war made most of Ireland ungovernable from the early 1920, it did not actually remove British forces from any part. But the success of Sinn Féin's propaganda campaign reduced the option of British government to deepen the conflict. It worried in particular about the effect of British relations with the U.S., where groups like the American Committee for Relief in Ireland had so many eminent members. The British cabinet had not sought the war that had developed since 1919. By 1921, one of its members, Winston Churchill, reflected, What was the alternative? It was to plunge one small corner of the empire into an iron repression, which could not be carried out without an admixture of murder and countermurder. Only national self-preservation could have excused such a policy, and no reasonable man could allege that self-preservation was involved. According to the dead of the Irish Revolution, 2,346 people were killed or died as a result of the conflict. This counts a small number of deaths before and after the war, from 1917 until the signing of the treaty at the end of 1921. Of those killed, 919 were civilians. 523 were police personnel, 413 were British military personnel, and 491 were IRA volunteers, although another source gives us 550 IRA dead. About 44% of these British military deaths were by misadventure, such as accidental shooting and suicide on active service, as were 10% of police losses and 14% of IRA losses. About 36% of police personnel who died were born outside of Ireland. At least 557 people were killed in political violence in what became Northern Ireland between July 1920 and July 1922. Most of these deaths took place after the truce that ended fighting in the rest of Ireland. Of these deaths, between 303 and 340 were Catholic civilians. Between 172 and 196 were Protestant civilians. 82 were police personnel, and 35 were IRA volunteers. Most of the violence took place in Belfast. At least 452 people were killed there, 267 Catholics and 185 Protestants. By October 1921, the British Army in Ireland numbered 57,000 men, along with 14,200 RIC police and some 2,600 auxiliaries in black and tans. The long-planned evacuation from dozens of barracks in what the Army called Southern Ireland started on January 12, 1922, following the ratification of the treaty and took nearly a year, organized by General Neville McCready. It was a huge logistical operation, but within the month, Dublin Castle and Beggars Bush Barracks were transferred to the provisional government. The RIC last paraded on April 4th and was formally disbanded on August 31st. By the end of May, the remaining forces were concentrated in Dublin, Cork, and Kildare. Tensions that led to the Irish Civil War were evident by then, and evacuation was suspended. By November, about 6,600 soldiers remained in Dublin at 17 locations. Finally, on December 17, 1922, the Royal Barracks, now housing collections of the National Museum of Ireland, was transferred to General Richard Mulcahy, and the garrison embarked on Dublin Port that evening. In May of 1922, the British government, with the agreement of the Irish Provisional Government, established a commission chaired by Lord Shaw to examine compensation claims for material damage caused between January 1919 and July 1921. The Irish Free State's Damage to Property Compensation Act provided that only the Shaw Commission and not the Criminal Injury Acts could be used to claim compensation. 
Originally, the British government paid claims from unionists, and the Irish government from those nationalist claims where neutral parties were shared. After the 1925 collapse of the Irish Boundary Commission, the UK Free State and Northern Ireland governments negotiated revisions to the 1921 treaty. The Free State stopped contributing to the servicing of the UK national debt, but took over full responsibility for compensation for war damage, with the fund increasing by 10% in 1926. The Compensation Commission worked until March 1926, processing thousands of claims. Although most of the fighting was carried out by men, women played a substantial supporting role in the Irish War of Independence. Before the Easter Rising of 1916, many Irish nationalist women were brought together through organizations fighting for women's suffrage, such as the Irish Women's Franchise League. The Republican Socialist Irish Citizen Army promoted gender equality in many of these women, including Constance Markovitz, Madeleine French Mullen, and Kathleen Lynn joined the group. In 1914, the all-female paramilitary group Kamenemba was launched as an auxiliary of the Irish volunteers. During the Easter Rising, some women participated in fighting and carried messages between Irish volunteer posts while being shot at by British troops. After the rebel defeat, Eamon de Valera opposed the participation of women in combat and they were limited to supporting roles. During the conflict, women hid IRA volunteers being sought by the British nursed wounded volunteers, and gathered money to help Republican prisoners and their families. Commandant Ba engaged in undercover work to set back the British war effort. They smuggled guns, ammunition, and money to the IRA. Kathleen Clark smuggled gold worth 2,000 pounds from Limerick to Dublin for Michael Collins. Because they sheltered wanted men, many women were subject to raids on their homes by British police and soldiers, with acts of sexual violence sometimes being reported but not confirmed. It's estimated that there were between 3,000 and 9,000 members of Kumanamba during the war, and in 1921, there were 800 branches throughout the island. It's estimated that fewer than 50 women were imprisoned by the British during the war. A memorial called the Garden of Remembrance was erected in Dublin in 1966 on the 50th anniversary of the Easter Rising. The date of signing the truce is commemorated by the National Day of Commemoration, when all those Irish men and women who fought in wars in specific armies, for example, the Irish units fighting in the British Army in 1916 at the Battle of the Somme, are commemorated. The last survivor of the conflict was Dan Keating of the IRA, and he died in October 2007 at the ripe old age of 105. Well, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did making it. I'm Griffin from the Legends of War podcast, signing off.